Hello out there. Yes, you. The one pointing at yourself right now. Welcome to a couple of moments of both solitude and clarity. The only prerequisite, close the door behind you, have a brew in hand, and turn up the volume. We're about to have a cuppa. Before we get to my guest, I have to thank all of you thus far whom continually stream or download on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, and Podcast One. These shows do mean a lot to many, and the more we get the message of recovery out there, and thus broaden the community as a whole, the more a better tomorrow seems in sight. By comparison, I entice you. If you are a recovery advocate, or for that matter, a mental health advocate, or any kind of advocate in similar fields, please, you have a space to tell your story without judgment. I like to learn with you, and trust me, I'm educating myself in the same go of talking to these people of various creeds and so on and so forth. That's it. Today's guest tackles both addiction, recovery, mental health, and so much more. Olivia Neal is an experienced counsellor, former alcoholic, and a free-spirited bundle of energy. Olivia runs an online presence in the sense of motivational and humorous videos under her guise called Running in the Right Direction. I can't put these videos in any context than educational, and if there's a thing I love about Miss Neal's approach, she's improvisational, knowledgeable, and unbelievably down-to-earth, raw, and funny. Don't take my word for it. Check out Olivia's handle on Instagram, running in the right direction. You can view the collection of footage that forms Olivia's sensibilities. Through these, she motivates, and she also prompts through workshops. And the way that she conveys herself, she talks to people like more or less the way I'm talking to you. In this conversation to follow, we have a bright chat about the perception beyond borders, namely. Olivia delves into her past, and we also tackle the often controversial topic of harm reduction. Again, Olivia's Instagram handle, it's all concurrent, running in the right direction. All in lowercase. Get in touch with me by following me on my Instagram handle. It's as follows, Chris Nell, dual L, Media, radio, acting, music, all concurrent. Facebook is just simply my first and last name, Chris Nell. My website, you can find out more about me, www.chrisnell.co.za. You can even email me, info at chrisnell.co.za. This podcast, of course, like all my others, are produced independently by my production company, CNMS. And so, with all that said... Let's head down on the road into the Trans Am with extra strong Java in the thermos to enjoy a cuppa with the modern southern belle, Olivia Neal. This portion of the show is being brought to you by our mystery sponsor, a product that is so good that they're paying us to keep anyone from associating it with this program. For our feature presentation. <sighs> Nothing like the finest selection. 
Nothing like the open road. Let's see where it leads me. Chris Nell. In a burgeoning career spanning half a decade, I've done a bit of everything. I've walked the boards on the stage. I've essayed emotions and intention down the barrel of a lens, and I've kept the public on its toes through the coil of a mic. Now, I've entered the world of podcasting. During my quest, there's many questions that need an answer. There are many voices yearn to be heard, and many stories aching to be told. I want to hear them all. I'm a vagabond with an insatiable curiosity. Now I'm hitting the road. Welcome to my journey. to hear the stories and the views of people spanning the globe. You'll be taken places through the odyssey of your imagination, from the palm trees of California to the Everglades of Florida, the prairie hills of Alberta, and the cathedrals of Montreal and beyond. Come along as we discover the hidden truths to matters of the heart, matters that knowledgeable people share, Artists, activists, advocates, and survivors. They share because they care. People like you and me. Join me as we learn what makes them tick. Sit back and strap yourself in. We're having a cuppa.
Olivia Neal, I don't know what it is about you. Maybe it is your spunky sense of humor. Maybe it's that Southern Belle accent. (laughs) (laughs) But welcome to the podcast, my dear. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. Now, the first thing that I've got to ask is, I look at you right now, I see a smile from ear to ear, and I say this to a lot of my guests who predominantly have been female. You all look like you should be a new incarnation of the Mona Lisa because (laughs) (laughs) because your beauty is just unparalleled. But... It didn't come easy, I'm guessing. How exactly did your tale with drugs and alcohol begin? Oh, wow. Um, so I started dabbling in things when I was an adolescent. Um, nothing really stuck to me. Like I was able to kind of pick and choose what I wanted to try. And I was um, blessed to not become really addicted to any of the substances I tried. There was a pretty heavy availability in the area that I grew up in to be able to find whatever you wanted. And where I grew up in rural North Carolina, they're the main, one of the main sources of entertainment really is uh, recreational drug use. So I learned how to use drugs pretty early on. Um, but again, I was really blessed that that never became like a huge aspect of my life. From there, um, I went through phases where I just wouldn't use it all. My parents were um, very uh, clued in to what I was doing and were not approving whatsoever of that. So I would go through phases where I wouldn't use it all. And then when I got to college, I was a pretty heavy drinker. Um, I drank heavily through undergraduate and graduate school. And then there was a time that I had had an issue with alcohol. I got extremely drunk and laid it out on a boyfriend at the time's grandparents. Um, I actually called them really, really horrible names and told them that they were white trash. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was acting <laughs> this is a little old man and old lady that didn't deserve that at all. I loved oh, them. And I was just, I was pissed drunk and I was angry and I wanted to be hurtful. After that, I took a siesta. I took some time where I didn't drink at all. Uh, you could say that was definitely the nail in the coffin where I, where that relationship really ended. Um, so that was a hard thing for me to deal with for a while. Um, then spans of time would come and go where I would drink again and then I would be sober again. Um, I moved to upstate New York with my husband back in, hmm, the summer of two years ago and moving to upstate New York, I had no idea at the time there was such a prevalence of intravenous drug use and just hard drugs in general. Um, I'm super grateful that my time spent as an addiction counselor had really, um, primed me to the fact that I knew that I did not want to try to use intravenous drugs, but there was a lot of intravenous drug use going on. Um, just a lot of hard drugs and I, some of which like I had tried in the past, it was pretty triggering to want to, uh, just like be a part of that scene. And while I was part of that scene, I wasn't using while I was in upstate New York whatsoever. And that was one thing that really frustrated me is that I was 
living in Ithaca, New York, which is home to Cornell University, one of the Ivy Leagues. Oh, yeah. And I was really frustrated that um, it seemed Cornell University was just trying to turn a blind eye to like this hard drug use. And I, as coming from previous substance abuse counselor positions, I really couldn't, like that really was unsettling to me. And early on when I first started doing uh, talks on um, my channel for running in the right direction, I was really upset about that. Um, but I have since moved away from talking about that. Like, I just don't know that there's anything to really come from me, just like being upset and angry about uh, just like the turning of a blind eye on the substance use is present in that population. But I was drinking super heavily while I lived in upstate New York. There was a ton of snow, more snow and more cold than I've ever experienced in my life, having grown up in the South. I've lived in West Virginia and I've lived in Southern California, um, but I've never lived in anywhere that was quite as cold as upstate New York um, with Finger Lakes effects and things like that, <laughs> getting below zero and just like snow that never goes away. Even the days that it's not snowing, there's still snow. It doesn't get warm enough for it to melt. So that was quite an adjustment to say the least. And it's definitely, I can see how it's a trigger for anybody to want to use. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Being stuck between four, four walls and a door to keep warm. No yeah. one to talk to, you know, it's so where cold else do you have to go? <laughs> you know, I've never sit outside my own native homeland, which is South Africa, but I've heard, what I initially thought was old wives' tales about New York being covered in snow. Mm -hmm. uh, my one, he was a good friend of mine. He was my surrogate dad. He had family that immigrated from here to Schenectady, New York. And um, he came up for, okay. a, for a visit. And every morning, his words, they would have to walk out and dish all the snow out from the driveway just so that they could get their car going. Oh, I bet, yeah. And then a couple of years later, a friend of mine who lives up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, actually sent me photos of how they shift snow out of the way so that they can move. But I mean, the snow sits literally <laughs> miles and miles high. You can barely move. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine, like, I know that there are places that experience more snow. I don't even want to think about how much how much more snow there could be than there was in Ithaca. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm led to understand time. that Russia also has like the worst cold one could ever imagine. I don't want to sound stereotypical, but I believe Russia has cold almost 365. In fact, I was told the story that uh, someone who I knew, it was in fact my lecturer's uh, eldest sibling, used to do contract work in Moscow. Every morning he would come out, his nose would be frosted. That's how below zero it was in Russia. You cannot oh, wow. imagine. So as I'm led to understand from the monologue that you've told me, you were a recreational drug user, but it was more alcohol that became your Achilles heel, correct? Correct. That was the one that was the one that I realized I had a harder time putting down. Like I right. could go spans of time without I mean, utilize, I mean, I can't think of the last time that I've used other substances. Like, it would be pretty tough and, like, spans of time to go by, and I wouldn't really miss other things. But alcohol, I was really in such a habit of using on a regular basis that I recognized 
I wasn't having as much control over it anymore as it was having a variable of control over me. So that's when I started noticing that eh, maybe this is maybe this is a wake up call. Maybe it's time to start changing some things. And how exactly did that play out? Oh man! So I left upstate New York in the late fall of last year. My husband and I had been going through some rocky times while he was in his graduate school program, and ultimately, I decided that it was better for. Well, I or we decided it was better to uh, take some time apart. So he went back to North Carolina. Um, classes mm-hmm. were virtual at the time. And I stayed in upstate New York. I was working for a real estate company. And from there, I ultimately left my job. I decided it was going to be time to sell our house. And I went to Southern California for I planned to go for three to five days and I ended up staying for three and a half weeks. I stayed out there and uh, stayed with friends. I had lived there in the past and had been a drug counselor for a large drug treatment center there in the past. And I felt like maybe this was the right season of my life for me to regroup and go back to Southern California. So I worked, I took some time in Orange County, uh, printed out some resumes, got some business cards made up and thought like, well, we'll give this a try. And sure enough, I got a job interview and landed a job while I was out there just visiting friends. So I packed up all my things from New York and moved to Southern California Mm. and started working for a drug treatment center out there. Um, Meanwhile, while I was out there on my three and a half week uh, hiatus, I decided that it was time that I that I made a change. Um, there was no like DWI. There was no like huge, like fight or like come to Jesus moment. Um, what happened was my mom had asked me about my alcohol consumption before I went to California and in a really kind of like offhanded way that she's never done before, um, kind of out of concern. And my parents are very straight laced. So they, my mom doesn't drink whatsoever. And she kind of like asked me in a, uh, in a pretty pointed way um, about my alcohol consumption. So that kind of stood out to me, but I, I played it off. When I got out to California, one of the friends of mine that I'd worked with years prior, I had seen when I got out there and he was in recovery from hard drug use, intravenous drug use and fully sober. And he asked me, we were sitting on a pier in Seal Beach and he said, so are you still drinking? And because when I had been a substance abuse counselor in the past, I, I was only using alcohol and he knew that. Um, and I said, yes. And he really kind of, um, honed in on that, gave me a little bit of a hard time about that and said, you know, you're going through a lot, like you're going through the separation. Um, I'd really caution you against trying to numb out. And at this point I wasn't just like drinking beers occasionally, like I had been doing for the most part. I was drinking a lot of scotch and I was drinking a lot of Jack Daniels really just straight or, I mean, I drink the scotch on the rocks, but I, I was just drinking Jack Daniels out of the bottle. I was carrying around bottles of Jack Daniels. Like I did pretty much everything, like at least somewhat under the influence at that point. Um, I would say the months leading up to, I mean, I didn't go to work under the influence, but like I would leave work and have drinks with coworkers and come back to work. Right. A very functioning alcoholic. For sure. 
And like, I can remember the flight before I went to California, I had brought um, one of the, the medium little guys. I don't, I don't know if that's client or what, but uh, <laughs> to, to the airport. And I, I, I remember I, I was like, oh, I forgot that this is in my purse. I can't carry this into the into security. So I went to the bathroom, got in a stall, and took the whole thing to the face. I drank the whole thing oh, before I went through security. Oh, Olivia. So I went through security fine. And then after that, I was blitzed. I was blitzed for the whole flights out to California. <laughs> Um, so when my friend in seal beach was asking like well tell me more about your alcohol use that's i mean i didn't tell him that i i was like well i'm drinking a little whiskey blah blah i didn't tell him that i downed a whole pint in the bathroom before i got on the plane so dude so that kind of made me have a little bit of uh introspection for sure of course and uh, from there, there was a third touch that happened. I had gone to, there's this uh, church in Orange County that I was a part of when I had lived there in the past um, called Free Chapel, Orange County. And the pastor is actually from a small town in North Carolina, about 30 minutes from where I grew up. He's a pastor of a mega church in, I think, Gainesville, Georgia and Orange County, California, like huge congregations. And he's written several books. His name's Jensen Franklin. And I just yeah, read one of Jensen his books. Franklin, wow. Yeah. So he was there. Um, he was there at the service that I had gone to. We were outdoors. They had rented this tent that was supposed to be for the NFL draft. And then when the NFL draft didn't happen due to COVID, they were able to use that tent and do side services at the Slip Mega Church in Orange County. Oh so I gosh. had just read this book that was talking about how, um, like God hadn't, God hadn't, uh, given plants and animals, the authority over us as humans, like humans had the authority over animals and plants. Why would we, as people give the, like give our mental state, like why would we give that permission over to a plant like cannabis or, you know, Mm. cocaine like whatever why would we why would we do that kind of exchange and like willingly do that so Mm. i read that book maybe two weeks before i had gotten to california and he was there so it's really pumped i was like okay wow and he did not touch on the book but he said something along the same lines as that specific part of the book that i really honed in on and I had been writing, like I'd gotten to the service pretty early and I was just writing all my sticky notes, doodling, whatever. Mm. And I'd drawn a picture of this lighthouse this on North Carolina's Outer Banks and like some prayers and things prior to the service beginning. And then long story short, he in the middle of the service mentions the Outer Banks and Hatteras, like, and that's what I had just drawn on my sticky note. He says that right after he like makes an like, some sort of allusion to the passage about substance use and things like that. That was very parallel to the book that I just read, but he mentions this part of North Carolina, this pretty fringe, like no one in orange County would have any idea what he's talking about. And so I was like, that shot me. me. So right then and there, I was like, okay, man, like this is the third thing. And like, less than a week and a half. Like this is the third touch. I'm, I'm laying it down, man. I don't know how long I'm going to give it up for, but I'm going to give it up. 
How is it? So that was the day. And I, I had like a case of beer in the back of my car, my rental car. I drove to my friend's house that I was staying with. I was like, man, here's this beer. <laughs> and I didn't have any of it. So, and that's been a little over six months ago now. I'm coming up on 200 days. So, well done, Olivia. It's, it's wild. I haven't really told that story in full to that many people, but that's, that's the real deal. That's really how that, uh, how it got started for me. Well, I'm very proud of you on that. And, you know, I revert back to in the beginning when I said, look at you, look how radiant you are from positivity. And you mentioned Jensen Franklin and your whole tale. There's always a confirmation of three. A first sign, a second sign, yeah. a third sign. And that's a very broad stroke that I'm painting with. Please hear me. But it always happens yeah. in threes until such a time that the message I agree. In. Yeah, it's like, the th it's like the second time could be a coincidence, the third time it's like, nope, this is something I'm supposed to be hearing right now. And tell me, were you already studying to become a drug counselor in addiction or did it come exactly afterward? Help me write in that. Um, no, actually, I've actually worked in substance abuse counseling since I was um, about 20, 21 years old. Okay. All right. I, um, so my first job, um, I was still one of my first like professional jobs. I was coming out of school at UNC Chapel Hill. I finished my undergraduate degree a little bit early and I stayed in the city because I wanted to stay with my friends that were still in school and still have a good time, hang out with them. So I stayed there, but I would drive to another town about an hour away, three nights a week, and lead substance abuse intensive outpatient group classes. And oh, so a lot of my clients right. would be on federal probation. Some of them would be, um, some of them would be willing participants, like voluntary. But most of the time, it would be people that were on a court order or like trying to um, regain custody of their children, et cetera. And they were completing the classes to fill a requirement. And this was my, I was doing, um, I was a co-facilitator of these groups. And most of the time, my clients really hated my guts. They were super mean to me. They would like tell me off. They would call me like crazy bitch. Like they were just really mean. And this is a very young <laughs> version of me, like just trying to get, get my, you know, get my feathers wet, like with the substance abuse counseling culture. Because at that time, I had just completed a degree in psychology and clinical psychology was my concentration. And I had been working, I knew I wanted to work in mental health, but I thought that I wanted to do like counseling for just like general counseling. I didn't think that I was going to necessarily try and niche in substance abuse counseling, but in the town that I grew up in, that was what the need was. There was a huge need for drug counselors. So whenever I was starting to work, that was the need and that was the position that they put me in. And over time, I started to really love it. I got really good at the job. Um, I started to learn how to get a little tougher with my clients, how to establish a rapport really quickly, and how, mm -hmm. like, if someone called me a crazy bitch, just roll with it and, you know, not let it get under my skin and become a, a better and stronger counselor through that. I remember one of my first classes that I led independently without a co-facilitator, this is still kind of cracks me up to this day. Like my clients knew that I was so green that what would happen is like, I would have a sign in sheet. And there was one day that I had like 20 names on my sign in sheet. And towards the end of the group, I counted how many people were in my class. And there was only like 11. 
admissions group so like you'd have the same clients and you might gain another one it was just it was rolling and one of the um the things that I've been doing on running in the right direction is uh when I've been wearing this like SIA wig I've been talking about the matrix intensive outpatient manual and that's the manual that I utilized when I was teaching these substance abuse groups and I think it's super effective in fact whenever I start feeling uh like I'm having a craving or a trigger, that is the program that I have built my approach, like within myself and my recovery. That's what I've used. Not necessarily an AA model because I've never been to an AA group. I would really love to do that sometime soon. But the model that I have worked under and the the model that I know like by heart at this point is the matrix. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really great. I think it works really well. Um, It was actually developed by two men in the 80s specifically to treat stimulant use disorders, but it's pretty easy to translate across all kinds of substance use. Mm. So um, once I had been doing that group for several years, um, so I'd had a co-facilitator. So this is like back within my first six months to a year of working. And then the two co-facilitators that I worked with both ended up leaving the facility within like a week of each other. So suddenly it was only me that was trained to facilitate these groups. Oh, it must've been a nightmare. People I worked for were like, well, you got this. So it was kind of trial by fire, but it was also (laughs) awesome. It taught me how to really um, interact and be brave and to make those social connections and how to have an impact. And it's wild because there are so many people, I would say, I would say more than 10 people from the time period that I independently led those treatment groups that still keep up with me to this day and will tell me they'll they'll DM me, they'll text me because there's a two year time frame that you can't really interact with your clients. You're not supposed to talk to them like on social media. You're not supposed to friend them on social media. You're not supposed to text them, et cetera, um, as part of the, my code of ethics that I operate under. But I told clients at that time, you know, and I was very upfront each time I had a new client, like there's this two year period. If after that you want to friend me on Facebook, go for it. Like set a little timer on your phone. Um, and, and I, I so made good by that timer. because I really, <laughs> I really did. Like I, I, your heart just like, you really connect to some people, you know, in your groups. No, and I've had several people. Yeah. Me and I'd worked in a methadone treatment center more recently where I had a caseload of 50 to 60 clients and I was meeting with them a couple of times a month. And I had those clients for over a year. Whereas when I had worked in outpatient, intensive outpatient, those were 36 session courses. So I saw them three times a week for 36 sessions. So those I, w- I didn't have the same longevity of a relationship with those clients as I did okay. whenever I worked in methadone treatment. All right. And those clients, whenever I left that job, oh man, it really broke my heart because I had established such a good working relationship and rapport with them. And I have several clients from that area of practice that keep up with me as well. 
So that's really, that's a huge reward factor for me whenever I step back and think about like motives for wanting to continue um, being a drug and alcohol counselor is it's, it's a really shitty job at times. Like it's not good pay. Um, you have clients that are going to be really hateful to you. You're going to have clients that are going to overdose. It's going to break your heart. You're going to lose clients. They're going to pass away due to this addiction. Um, especially when I've worked with intravenous drug use, like it's just, you hear really horrible stories. Like nobody comes in there into into your office to tell you really how great things are going. Typically, Mm -hmm. um, typically Mm -hmm. people tell you about traumas and, um, I've worked with clients that have struggled with pedophilia. I've worked with clients that have struggled with like major sexual abuse. And it's just, it's always, it's really intense. Like I, I had a client that had, um, that was struggling with a relationship with their, um, consenting very, very, uh, biologically closely related family member. And I, I ethically, you know, like that feels weird, right? You don't want to have to talk about that, but they were talking to me about it because they were experiencing a lot of guilt about it. I ended up meeting with both of them. They were both clients. One of them was mine. One of them was not. And we had a group session about that. They're both consenting. I mean, and that's not something that I have a duty to report. It just feels uncomfortable, right? You don't want to think about about that uh, happening. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm very black and white when it comes to ethics. I think that- Of course. When I was in graduate school, there was a lot of coaching about accepting of the gray area and tolerance of the gray area and this and that. I think that a lot of areas can be, can seem gray, but then when you really consult like your code of ethics and your areas of practice, there's a right and a wrong answer. And to me, there was no, um, there was nothing good to come of trying to cause those clients to experience like any more trauma than they were already going through in some weird way. They were, they were a support system to each other. It didn't make sense to me, but it didn't have to. Of course. So, But now I have to ask this when you caught in a situation like what you've just mentioned and they share these things with you, this is a toughie because I'm just, working this through my head on layman's terms alone. What, how do you get the message across that there's a right and a wrong and how do they take it? So that's one of the things about me that not everyone that I work with agrees with. Um, And even like when you watch TV shows, right? Like I've been watching a show recently that's, it's a hospital show. It's called Private Practice, and they have these like oh, yes, ethical I love dilemmas. Private practice. They have these like ethical dilemmas where they want to uh, really pick apart, like, oh, should we intervene? Should we not? And to me, the answer is almost always very clear. Um, I'm not there to intervene in people's personal lives. I'm there to talk about substance use. I'm there mm-hmm. for harm reduction. Um, right. I'm not we'll going to, to be an, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to be the person that's going to say, if you use this drug, I'm going to call your PO. Nope. In fact, if your PO calls me, I will, I will fight to like, I will, I will fight tooth and nail to make sure your, your medical records cannot be released from my office. And mm-hmm. I purposely mm-hmm. make notes that, that protect my clients. I make my personal like clinical notes. 
in a way that if they were to be subpoenaed, they don't reflect on my clients in a uh, negative manner. Right. Or in a in a manner that could land them in prison or could I have do. their. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, really? I'm, I'm very protective about that. I write my notes vague enough that they are a documentation to me uh, of their progress, but also cannot be, um, there's a word that I'm trying to find. They can't It'll be, come to you. It'll come to you. Uh, they can't, like, indict them, basically, based on Naturally. the things that I've written. And they can't yeah. use those, those records. That's what that's the word I'm looking incriminate. for. I don't want to incriminate anyone with my notes. But to me, yeah, like I'm 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 a harm reduction person. Um, mm-hmm. if I can see that a client is trying, then that's that's the goal. If there if there's progress being made, that's the goal. Well, I hear you saying that, and it's interesting because um, the reason why I started this whole series in the first place was to learn more about addiction on an international level. Because in my walk of recovery, it appears that there's only one mathematical formulae. You come to a point of surrender where you can't take it anymore. You attend a meeting, obviously with a counselor like yourself, who is well-versed on the certain subject matter or on a variety of subject matter where addiction is concerned and trauma. And then normally they would say, right, we would recommend this outpatient facility for X, Y, Z reasons. And then when I began doing my first to second interview, I began learning about harm reduction. Now, please don't kick me because this is not ignorance. I didn't have the knowledge about it because it was a completely Greek concept to me. When I first heard about harm reduction, I literally thought it was harm reduction. Stop getting that person to harm themselves physically but it's interesting to note as well with addiction in itself there is a risk factor of when you take that certain substance like i'm holding a pack of cigarettes in my hand right now take that out of the equation what happens yes you go through a withdrawal period but then again as well those withdrawals can be extremely excruciating and it can drive a person completely up the wall. Then there's another facet to it. The concept of shame. No one asks to have an addiction. Sure. It didn't fall out of the sky, hit someone on the head. And then the next moment that rail goes up the nose or that next line goes up the, the vein. No one asks for it. Right. But I do agree with you in that harm reduction is a very misunderstood concept. I had a doctor, in fact, who is on the faculty of U Calgary, and they consistently debate the subject on harm reduction. It's not a fact of keeping that person on the substance for the sake of, I'm going to say the word in inverted commas, for the joy of it, but right. to help them. Yeah. In other words, meet them where they're at and treat them sure. accordingly. Exactly. And so whenever I've worked in methadone treatment, I learned that harm reduction is, at least in the substance abuse treatment community, when you hear the phrase harm reduction, most people take that to mean, or most people have caused that to mean um, opioid like substitute treatment. So things like methadone, buprenorphine, Subutex, Suboxone, things that keep you from um, experiencing opioid withdrawal. 
But to me, we devalue the the word phrase harm reduction by trying to pigeonhole that only being substance abuse like specific um, with opiates because you can have harm reduction across any area of mental health, right? Like oh, when, yes. it com- when it comes to literal like self-harm, harm reduction is really important. If, for example, like if I was seeing a client, like I had a client in the past, so I'll use a real example, um, and they were struggling with self-harm to cope. Um, this was someone that had an extensive past of substance use and addiction. They were being treated, they were clean, they were on a medic, uh, medical assisted treatment program. They are called MATs whenever you're um, using methadone, uh, buprenorphine, subutex, suboxone, et cetera. Mm. And she was really struggling with self-harm. And one of the things that she and I talked about and uh, really honed in on during several sessions was how could she not just fully give up the concept of self-harm, but go from doing things like her self-harm was really extensive. She was she was right. doing very like heavy duty, like large cuts self-harm. Yeah. How could she go from that to smaller scale self-harm to still achieve like a similar emotional coping sensation, but not put herself in a situation where she was doing such heavy self-harm that it might land her in an emergency facility or in a psychiatric facility, which was not something she wanted. It was not a cry for help. It was literally a way that she had learned over the time in her life to cope with lots right. of traumas and things like that. And one of the things that I, um, that I thought about earlier with something you were saying, um, when you said nobody asked for addiction, nobody wants this to just like fall into their lap. Over the time that I've spent as an alcohol and drug counselor, I just, especially when it comes to like hard drugs and intravenous drug use, the longer I've worked in the industry, the more I really feel like no one it's a very small percentage of people who start using intravenous drugs that have not experienced some really, really horrible traumas in their life. That's what I was alluding to. Yeah. You and I are on the same page. You and I are on the same page without a doubt. And another example, Olivia, the audience can't see it, of course. You and I, we're talking. Yeah. But this actually, if you think about it, is a form of harm reduction. Oh, I fully agree. And that was one of the things that I had, uh, that I had really, really like stated pretty frequently in running in the right direction video clips kind of early on is that, um, if you had been smoking crystal meth, if you had been, you know, smoking any sort of hard drugs, like how could you start reducing the amount of hard drugs that you were smoking and start increasing the amount of nicotine you were taking in? Um, I'm pretty well read when it comes to the effects of nicotine on the brain. And it's one of the ways that I rationalize the amount of cigarettes that I smoke. Like I understand that there are negative side effects from smoking and like health hazards, et cetera. Um, and one of the books that I've been reading recently is called the health benefits of smoking tobacco and nicotine It's written by a medical doctor. Um, and he, he focuses on a lot of different studies from around the world, not just like the U S surgeon general's warning, Um, And he really kind of picks that apart in a way that um, discusses the years in which that was published and the reasons why the time frame in which that was published could have really affected how we got the severity 
of like, don't do this, it's going to kill you versus ever talking about like the benefits behind the substance of nicotine itself. Absolutely. And the ways that it, um, the ways that it changes the interconnectedness of the left and right brain when nicotine is present, um, the effect of like our positive emotions once smoked, et cetera. Of course. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is really interesting, but uh, yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think this smoking cigarettes is an extremely awesome way and sometimes marijuana, man, like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not a marijuana smoker anymore. Um, not because look at the okay. amount, look at the amount of CBD chemicals that are being prescribed for cancer use. Right. Exactly. And plus also this affects me personally. My one aunt is currently fighting pancreatic cancer and went for the op to cut out the majority of the cells, went for radiation, went for chemo and out of nowhere, someone in the medical field they said, you know what? It's a hot potato, but try cannabis oil to try and alleviate the pain somewhat. Right. And of course, there's the reason why I bring this up, Olivia, and please hear me. I don't take one side, the one or the other. Here's my rationale. I sinned in my life, in my dark days. When I achieved sobriety, I undertook an oath of sorts with God to never judge ever again. The least I can do is be more literate on the subject, not take a pose, because what works for me will never quite possibly work for the next person. Right, exactly. They also need an outlet. And it's surprising to see that the topic of harm reduction is very much a hot potato because much like the yin-yang, there are going to be people who are going to misconstrue the entire concept hand over fist for the good or the bad. Right. And I think that's, I think that's true about so many things. Um, but I think you're exactly right. I mean, there's no way that one approach and one, I mean, it's, it's going to have treatments never going to be one size fits all. You definitely have to meet the person where they're at. It's person and environment. Meet them halfway. It's the only way that I believe can work for, for treatment. And, um, uh, Now I want to get to something that you spoke about on a video. You mentioned your background is clinical psychology and you eventually wanted to shift over to social work for a concentration. Correct. Yes. What was the hot potato that you couldn't get your master's from Chapel Hill? So I did my undergraduate degree in Chapel Hill and then UNC Chapel Hill has a smaller sister school in Greenville, North Carolina which is where I did my master's program. It was a dual degree program um, in social work and addictions counseling. And at this point, I was still working at the facility where I was teaching substance abuse intensive outpatient groups. And I was, I had pretty much um, conceded to the idea that I was, I was really thinking that I was going to do drug counseling. Like that was, that's the biggest need in the area. And I knew that I was I was getting better with working in that popu- in that population, and I felt sure that I was going to specifically use the um, addictions counseling degree for that purpose. So, the dual degree program I had been in for three years. I was in the last semester of my master's program, and in late March of that year, I'll go ahead and backtrack to the um, late February early March of the year before I had been involved in an extremely abusive relationship with my neighbor, um, who I had no intention of dating. It was kind of a girl next door, blah, 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 that evolved into more. 
Uh. And they had become extremely abusive to me. I experienced uh, several levels of trauma, including sexual trauma, and could not cope. Um, I ended up, my parents had to help me move out of the house I was living in one day while that person was at work. We moved an entire, like an entire house of, of my things out during a span of time that he was at work just so I could get away from him. Um, and then I ended up living with my parents until I was, until I wasn't afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I relocated to California after that. And right. I did one year of law school. But what happened in between is the next year on the trauma anniversary, you know, like people say like the trauma anniversary and things like mm. that. Mm. Um, I was in my master's program and I had an emotional change, we could say. All right. I had dyed my hair fire engine red. Um, I was, I was really, it wasn't necessarily an attention seeking thing. I wanted to be like, I remember thinking I wanted to be like a walking stop sign. I wanted people to know that I was not the one to fuck with. I was not the one. And so I had bright red hair. Um, I was wearing really heavy, like rocker biker chick kind of, um, aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's not super different from like certain like styles I'll hone in on now, but that was just my everyday. And that started around uh, December when we got to March of that year for the first time in my life. I had no idea. I didn't see any of this coming. I had worked in psychology. I'd studied abnormal psychology, whatever I should have, but I didn't. It's hard to recognize symptoms within yourself, right? Like, especially when your brain is telling you like, that this, all of this makes sense. So that year, um, I started experiencing mania and it was something that had never happened to me before. Um, I was going to my classes, I was going to my internship. Um, I was doing very well. I had, I had a 3.98 GPA whenever I was ejected from the program. I had a day that I was in class. I had an Asian professor that, um, throughout the time I was in the program and I've talked to several people about this, so I'm going to try and like say this in the way that I really want to say it and not come off wrong. But he would not call on me in classes. This is my research class. I was heavily interested in research. I've been published a few times um, in, in Chapel Hill. I was like super interested in research, et cetera. Really wanted to work toward development of my own evidence-based practice one day. Mm. It's still a goal of mine. And he would not call me, would not interact with me whatsoever. There were three men in a class of 30 some people. The rest of us were women and he did not like to call on women. So imagine you're in a classroom full of 30 people and there's 10 hands up. He's only going to call on you if you're a man. Mm. And this particular day I was, I was fed up with it. And I went to his office hours after class and I laid it down and I said, you have a job because of me. You have a job because I'm a student at your, at this university and you may be paid to do all this research and whatever, but you have to listen to me. You have to call on me. You have to interact with me. And I told him, I was like, and if I have to go stand out behind your car, when you're trying to leave the school, like you're going to talk to me. And I really laid it out there. I can't remember what all I said to him other than that, but the um, next door down was 
the director of the program or the head of the program or whatever. And she, the interim, I think, and uh, she overheard the conversation and she was not my biggest fan already. And so she started sending out emails to other professors, basically trying to start a witch hunt to get me ejected from the program saying like, Oh, well, she seems like she might really be off her meds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, number one, there was no reason for them to have thought anyway that I was on meds, which I mean, I was not on any meds. Um, so then they were like, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this. Uh, this might violate FERPA, et cetera. Like maybe we shouldn't be putting this in writing. Like all of these emails have come to light. They're all public information. Um, this is, and it, it's, it has now become a public, uh, it's, it's all public now. So I don't have any issue talking about it because all of my private mental health and like things that will be protected by HIPAA are all public information because it's a, this is now a federal lawsuit. It's been, it's been in um, litigation for six years now, me not being able to receive this master's degree. But to come back to like the point, I was psychiatrically hospitalized because I, I had gotten so on the fritz. I, had, I was coaching a high school wrestling team at the time. Um, I was I was an assistant coach and I'd gone to another city in North Carolina, Greensboro, which is like three or four hours away from my hometown. I'd gone there, come back and I hadn't slept in like four days and I was really tired. But I didn't realize that that was going to be something that would really uh, incur the onset of mania. Like prior to that, like it wouldn't be unusual for me to like like two nights in a row. Mm -hmm. um, but now I know that if I stay up, if I pull all nighters that's a trigger for me, for my mental health. Like that puts me in the danger zone for having a manic episode. So I didn't know that at the time, um, I actually had gone to a gas station in Greensboro filled up with gas. And this dog ran into my car, this white pit bull, it was snowing in Greensboro, this white pit bull. Like I'm usually terrified of like bully breed animals. <laughs> this dog ran straight into my car and I, I got down, I got out of the car. I was like, do you want to get in the car? Get in the car. And this dog jumps into my car. So I get, I, I just adopt this like wild pit bull that, uh, that day. And like, I bring this dog home. The dog like bit me. The dog jumped the fence at um, my parents' house where I was staying at the time, bit someone's fingers off. I had to rehome the dog. And just like, there were, there was kind of a series of like weird decisions that happened. Um, but then I lost the ability to differentiate uh, reality from like fictitious things that my mind was telling me. And I got into a car accident and in a snowstorm and was stranded on the side of the road with my dog. Um, someone picked me up off the side of the road and then dropped me at a gas station. I sat at the gas station, it was freezing cold, me and my dog sitting outside and I didn't have my phone. I had no way to contact anyone. And finally, I went inside the gas station into the bathroom, had my dog with me. They called um, 911 and uh, an ambulance came and I was taken to an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And from there, I think I was there maybe like a week. I'm not sure. Um, but during that span of time was spring break for my university. So get this, I only missed one class, one class of each of the two classes that I was enrolled in. Only one of each. So I was in like a research and a community development class. That's all. And 
I, I don't think I had any abscesses prior to that. I think that was the only class that I missed. Um, I'm actually pretty certain of that. And from there, when I got out of the hospital, I had emails that said, you have to come into this admission com and retention committee meeting. When I got into the meeting, they handed me a letter ejecting me from the program. And it was, it was pretty heinous, man. Like I, my parents immediately from there, like we went and met with the lawyers, the lawyers, like someone that's like become a close friend of mine now because we've been working together for six years. Um, but they definitely had independent vendettas of like wanting me to be ejected from the program. Um, I think that they had like some, some like components of envy. I'm not really sure all the reasons, but I never presented within like the confine of the university as like dangerous, out of control, whatever, other than the meeting that I had with the one professor telling him like, you have to call on me in class. And um, so now all these emails have come out. We've done depositions. We've, uh, I've been all over the country like for doing depositions with these professors, none of which are even still at the university anymore. The university just is still really um, clinging to saying this phrase pretty much verbatim. She's not capable of being a social worker. She's not capable of being a treater. She will bring like bad, like basically they're saying like that I'll bring, uh, that I'll tarnish the name of social work. So they name so, shamed you. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's been horrible. They've, um, they have really tried to um, make my life a living hell for like six years now. They've tried to keep me in a box and tell me like what I can and can't do on the internet. Uh, there was a time that I had something about East Carolina University um, on my LinkedIn and I wrote like in progress instead of ejected from the program. I wrote the year I started and instead of having the year that ended, I wrote in progress. Um, that was like one of the options on LinkedIn, I guess. Correct. And I they, did that. They With my sent previous me degree. They sent me an, a cease and desist, like, official subpoena or letter or some kind of, like, legal document saying that fuck for? it had to come down. Yeah, so they've, they've done all these things to try and, like, really keep me silenced in this. And then finally, on year six, I'm like, you know what? Fuck you guys. Like, I'm going to talk about this. You're not going to make me be alone in this. Like, th because that's shame. Shame is whenever you have to keep it in the dark. Whenever you talk about it, you, it's, it's no shame can no longer operate once you bring it to light. So they've, they've caused me to experience like pain, suffering, emotional damages. And I really hope and pray that like eventually this degree will get surrendered to me. Um, and then from there, I really hope and pray that I, I am able to achieve not just like damages as far as like lost wages, um, but also emotional damages, because at this point, if I would have been able to have a dual master's degree, I would have been able to be fully licensed after two years in both of those fields. And I would have been able to work in private practices. I would have been able to work in huge drug treatment centers in, in California. I could have done anything I wanted to. And then possibly, depending on how hard I worked, I mean, I, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine went through this program as well. And she's making close to six figures a year. Um, if not six figures. And I have never made a third of that in a year with the, I mean, I was in college for eight years and I'm, I'm, I'm waiting tables starting tomorrow. So it's been, it's been extremely frustrating. I can um, well imagine. I can well imagine. Now, just one last question on that. And it struck a chord with me when you began the tale, mm -hmm. you said, 
You weren't the only isolated incident. This person in question, this lecturer had a habit of overlooking oh, sure. the female students, correct? Sure, yes, absolutely. Were there any other incidents concurrent with yours where you all came together and said, enough is enough, we're going to take this matter further, we want our diplomas hand over fist? No, I don't think I don't think so because for the for the most part. So this school was a lot. Um, you could, I mean, it's not even like a you could say it. It's a fact. It's a lot less prestigious than where I did my undergraduate degree. And most people in my classes didn't really give a shit. They were just they wanted they wanted to do their time in class and move on. Man, if they didn't get called on, they were like whatever. But I really like research was my area of interest, and I really really needed to get called on in those classes so that I could understand more, so that I could be a more active participant. I wanted to get published more often, etc. Wanted to like really be this guy's understudy. If he would have been any other professor, I probably would have tried to be his TA. And I had been a TA in this program. I had been a um, teaching assistant for and research assistant for one of uh, for one of the professors in the program. And like she handpicked me. I I mean I had almost a 4.0 in the program. I was I was working toward being, um, there's an honor in the program called social worker of the year. And that was my goal before they ejected me from the program. Um, but one of the things that is habitual for the program is they have a history of discriminating against people that are disabled and that is well-documented. And that's something that's being used in my case now. And if I win this case, it will be precedent setting law for the, like, Federal, uh, on a federal level, like, uh, like that goes and that shows like what what you can't do, what you can't discriminate against as far as people that have disabilities. So that would be really incredible, not just for me, but for a lot of other people if I were to win this case. Well, thinking about it, I suffer from depression. I'm a cancer survivor and I've had 10 years solid drug and alcohol abuse. In those 10 years, of which I attended three years of college and an additional year postgraduate school, I've only been given fair game. And I'm not, before I go any further, I'm saying this on the principle of what you've just shared with me, because it can happen to anybody, where it comes with regards to gender, uh, race, you know the merits as well as I, you're well-schooled, you're well-read on that, it doesn't matter, but right. it was all fair game. That is despicable, unacceptable, and unfathomable just because of one isolated incident. And this is just me practicing analytical thinking, but using a single isolated incident to evict a student from their program just to want to protect their reputation. And it's cost right. you exactly. financially. Because let's face it, getting tertiary education is not a cheap ride. I mean, right. it cost my parents 105 sticks for three years exclusively on top of another 30,000 for post-grad school. Right. I, I can just imagine how much you broke the bank. And now, six years but down I the line. I paid for it during the time that I was there. I worked I worked in substance abuse treatment while I was full-time in the program and full-time doing an internship. I worked in at night and, and I would be driving back. for you. 
Yeah. And now I, six years down the line. I paid for it all as I went. And that's. Now you can't I mean, make a living out of what you want because of right. this incident. For sure. Jeez, Olivia. Not to mention, like, they, and this is this is kind of one of the hot topics that um, keeps getting brought up, is that they teach, like, human behavior. They teach psychopathology. These are required courses in the program where they teach you about diagnostics. They teach you about how to meet the client where they're at, how to, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, diagnose, et cetera. And then they didn't do their due diligence to support me at a time when obviously I couldn't have known what was going on, like what kind of mental changes I was experiencing. And they did absolutely the opposite of what they would preach in their program about meeting the client where they're at and providing compassion, et cetera. So they actually were the, were the social workers that tarnished the reputation because they were all fully qualified professorial level and they they chose to discriminate and well, not you know, provide that support. Well, you know what? Take comfort in this. Temporary as it is, it's happened to my mother as well. My mother wants to further her studies in theology. And mm. she went to a highly regarded seminary to present a case study that they thought could have made, well, what she thought rather, could have made it very interesting study subject and forgive me because i'm feeling the anger on your behalf oh you're fine and uh oh no darling trust me trust me what you see is a smile but beneath i'm seething in any event she presented a perfectly crafted pitch i mean you and my mother are both alike you're both left brain oriented detail oriented analytical people oriented in the sense of customer relations which was my mother's concentration so protecting relationships, and you alluded to that earlier when we began discussing harm reduction. Case in point, after the pitch, and this is front of a panel, they just looked at her like this and shook their head. But they offered her a cheapskate replacement in the sense that she could study in the seminary, but according to their criteria exclusively. Now, excuse me, there's this Modus operandi doing the rounds, and we're not, ladies and gentlemen, please hear hear me when I say this. This is not nitpicking on certain institutions. This is a real risk and a real problem that's happening in tertiary education, where the MO is we try and cultivate new minds, Mm -hmm. being revolutionary, thinking outside the box. But when an idea comes forward, the top brass have thinking like this. Mm -hmm. If you try and impede that frame of thinking, which I have shown you is in the box thinking, thinking like a matchbox. But when you try and move outside the box, then you're perceived as a threat. Let let me paint with an even broader brush. That's how I got booted out of my first FM job, because I continually thought out of the box. I came up with ideas for the benefit of the business and management saw it as a threat. And eventually I just cut my losses and I said, I'm out, I'm out. So you have my deepest sympathy in that regard. But I'd like to move forward to something more positive. And that that is running in the right direction because I've written to you, I've seen the amount of live videos. And this brings me again to the out of the box thinking, Olivia. 
it's easy for you and I to discuss a topic in in-depth detail because we have book knowledge on the particular subject at hand. But for, and I'll just say, the common Joe in the street, when you mm. try and explain that scientific concept to the latter, what will happen? It'll go in through the one ear and exit out the other, and they will look at you all squint and think that you're from out of space. Right. But uh, those videos that you do are so colorful and so creative and not going there for any other purpose. But what I like is, especially with the videos where you pose in your swimwear, it was not to be salacious or for that matter to evoke lust. What you're trying to do is, as you quite men quite rightly mentioned, and it's, I believe it's the day that you and I met, you're stripping the layers like an onion. Am I right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I do yeah. Like, I'm talking about that, like, like on Shrek, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think uh, especially in a time um, where we've had to really experience like life virtual, right? With um, with COVID nineteen, a lot of people were so isolated and and continue to be um, that virtual media and virtual communications. I mean, not that they weren't already pretty prevalent, but things have really shifted within the past year and a half. Flash and. Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to do when I first started um, thinking about running in the right direction was actually um, while I was in graduate school and it was a concept more that would be based in a running group, um, an in-person running group. But I wanted to connect different people from different walks of life, people that were in active addiction, people that were in recovery and people that had never experienced addiction. And so that way we could all kind of have a blended approach so like what works, what am I doing for fun? And like, especially for the, for the individuals that were not using and never had used to like be not, not like a, uh, not like a, on, on a podium, like I've never used, but just <laughs> like, connect. Yeah. I to love be able it. To <laughs> but to be able to just like blend those different sort like different lifestyles like doctors lawyers people that were coming from nothing etc to like all be able to get together as a running group in a social support network and not necessarily to like put any sort of hierarchy there but just so that so that people would feel inspired and people would see like there's you know, and like be able to meet other people and establish those social connections outside of their typical social sphere, which may have only been other people that used. Mm. Um, so that was something that that the whole idea came together when I was teaching an intensive outpatient group. And I had two clients that really heavily brainstormed that with me and a co-facilitator that I was in graduate school with that's a close friend. Of mine. So the four of us kind of cooked up this idea one night and then we elaborated on it. And then I had one client that still keeps up with me to this day, 10 years later or six years later. And she um, came up with a theme song. It's a machine gun Kelly song. It's called running. And it, it's like, it's really on point. It's really perfect. Like for, a theme song for a recovery, you know, outreach. And so like, I've always like kept that close to my heart. But then at that point in time, I was running like pretty regularly and I've gone through phases where I do and don't run. Um, I've been running some lately, but one of the things I realized is especially like um, 
following pandemic times. Like we can't get together for a running group, but not only that, not everybody wants to really get together to run. Like more people are are down to get together for a walk or get together to have cigarettes or have coffee, et cetera. So (laughs) I've actually, (laughs) yeah. So locally um, in my hometown, I have a a small following of people that will reach out to me. um, They have my cell phone number and they'll say like, Hey, can I drop by for a quick session? And like, I've been providing free treatment. So like we'll sit outside on the table that sometimes I do videos from um, like the smoker's porch. I mean, we'll sit out there and um, we'll have cigarettes. We'll have coffee. We'll talk about stuff. I had a a friend slash client come by one night at like, 2 a.m. They were like, hey, I'm really, really triggered to want to use like crack tonight. Like, can I just come by? And I was like, yeah, sure. So they just drove up. We sat in the driveway. We drank a non-alcoholic beer, smoked some cigarettes together and like we got through it. And so that's been really cool. Um, One of the things now that I just hadn't really thought about because it didn't really exist back in 2015 whenever we were first like thinking about this, like Instagram wasn't as... uh, I mean, there was Instagram, but as far as like Instagram video, there wasn't Instagram live and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, So now um, with that as a tool, I started really thinking like, yeah, I started thinking like, well, this could be huge. This could connect people, not just from like different walks of life within my community, but like different walks of life, like all over. So I knew that people within like my personal like friend group and my personal following on my personal Instagram, I started posting like start following this channel instead. And I started out kind of outlandish. Um, I uh, really like as an attention getting technique, see like, hey, like what's this all about? And one of the first videos I posted, I posted to my personal Instagram and it started out um, uh, conceptual ambiguity, like, what does that mean? Da, 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 da. Like conceptual wanted to say like ambiguity. Conceptual ambiguity. Like, like I wanted people to wonder, like, what's this running in the right direction all about? So that way more oh. people would start, it would start catching attention as we as I started to hone in on what the actual purpose was. Clever. So so I started out like being really conceptually ambiguous with that. And then, so for my personal like Instagram following at that time had much more traffic than the running in the right direction page did. Right. And so I tried to start bringing people over from that. And whenever I post videos, I can see how many views there are, but I'm not able to see who views it. Of course, mm-hmm. um, I can see who views my stories, my Instagram stories, but they never get nearly the same amount of views as the, the posts. And now after having done this for several months, like I actually, there's a guy that I like to watch sometimes on Instagram and his, he's called the angry therapist. <laughs> And he's really good. Highly recommend. Um, Is he like so Bill Burr, the comedian? Uh, no, he's not. He's he's like he's very legit as far as therapy goes. Like he's he's pretty high level. Um, and but but he does like really spit some good knowledge and uh, things that frustrate him. It's not all that different from maybe the ways that I would present. Uh, he's not, he doesn't get in a bikini and things like that. But he, he <laughs> no, but what I mean like, is he loses his shit whenever he does. Yes, yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's really good. So, um, <laughs> I'll check him out. <laughs> yeah, he's, I highly recommend. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's cool. But he had made this statement. He had made a statement a while back about if you really want to um, establish something, do it for a whole month. Like if you're trying to build an Instagram following, if you're trying to, you know, develop a program or a habit or whatever, intentionally do it every single day, like for a month. So when I started posting videos after, so I, I had like made a couple of posts. If you go to the very like beginning of running in the right direction, I had done like a couple of photos and a lot of the sober accounts that I follow are exclusively photos. Like most accounts that I follow, I think I follow maybe two people that will pretty regularly do video. But other than that, I think I'm the only person that does like pretty exclusively like video posts. Okay. Um, but I had seen him talk about, you know, doing things for a month and see how much they change. So I made a commitment. I'm going to post videos every day for, for a month. And I honestly, I didn't write the date down that I started doing it, but I would say probably two months went by before, you know, I really thought about like, Hey, I've been doing this for over a month. So I would say I went from, uh, I don't know, not, not very many views at all to, I think I average maybe like 250 right now as far as views go. So that's cool. I do definitely notice if I, if I publish a video where I'm uh, bikini clad, it gets a lot more views, <laughs> but I think that's, that's part of that's kind of part of the approach, man, is like, someone sent me a message that said like, well, I definitely am more likely to watch the entire talk if you're in a bikini. Oh, so for I'm God's like, well, sake. But, you know, I, I mean, and, and I'm not like, I'm not naive enough to think that that isn't the thought process for many people. But if I'm going to really be talking about some pretty deep stuff, um, of course, I'd want for, you know, the audience to, to, to hear that out no matter what I'm wearing. But if I know that I'm going to like catch the attention by occasionally putting on a bikini, man, like that's, it's a layered approach for sure. Correct. But that said, it's not a fact of that you seeking attention salaciously. That's the best word I can come up with. It's right. just That's it's just, it's just a gimmick to get the oh, message sure. across. But sadly, Absolutely. going back to the yin and yang debacle again, you are gonna get people who are going to get the entire concept so off kilter that they're only going to look at it as a, as I messaged you when we arranged this, as a cheap thrill. Oh, yeah. Uh, and when I first, when I had first started, uh, when I first started publishing videos, I went to my hairdresser um, to get a haircut. And she said, yeah, I had a client in here the other day that uh, was from Raleigh. And they said that their co-workers had been talking about your strip teases on Instagram. <laughs> And I was like, wow, all right. Well, so we got, we've got people all the way in Raleigh talking about it. Good. So I was like, the view count is going to, I mean, keep talking about me, man. Spread the word. But, uh, but no, that, that, um, that prompted me to want to talk more about, uh, about why that, that was something that had been part of uh, the videos. And um, I actually haven't done as much of that lately. Uh not not really just not really because um i'm trying to factor that out i just it just hasn't been a uh, part of 
my no, mood course. lately. Magic. But uh, and I try and make sure that I'm very authentic in those videos because I mean, to me, like I know I know the statistically and like theories show that if you are authentic, that's how you build the best rapport with very your clients. Much. And at the same time, like I don't I don't want to have to be putting a put on. Like I don't want to have to. Uh, I'm not going to fake it. That's not part of the platform for me. But what I also wanted to say was is. And this may tap into your skills as a psychologist. Are we ever in life going to look far beyond than what the eye can see when it comes to content? Because, because I'm in mass communications. I've been in mass communications now for six years. And it doesn't even matter how thorough, out of the box you can be, or even be as subtle. You are going to get those sticks in the mud who just can't see something for the potential that it offers instead of what they just see at face value. Oh, Chris, I think that we uh, are as a society moving further and further away from being able to see um, past visual fields there. Oh, for God's I think God. that we're becoming much more um, visually driven with the ever growing presence of social media, digital media, things like that. Uh, that's just, I think that's where we're headed and that's an unfortunate that's an unfortunate thing. It we're is. just so driven towards like the immediate gratification. And we're that's that's what's being fed to us. That's what's being coached to us. I'm sad to say I have to agree with you. I mean, when I entered this business, all I wanted to do was entertain through the coil of a mic. But for some odd reason, every time I seem to just say hello... I would have a proverbial gun pointed against my head for the way that I say it. Right. But then again, I'm not here to please anybody. I'm just here to find the, out the core of me and I want to learn. Because I right. nearly died three times. And the only way for me to move forward is in being in concert with community of people who've walked more or less the same route that I have. And if people don't like it, well, tough tacky. Or huh. tough shit, yeah. tough shit I agree. is the proper uh, colloquial term. So I get what you're saying. But then again, I really love the emotional transparency that you also put on those videos. As you say, you've, you have a prolific output of videos. And you've even spoken about the troubles that you're going through, um, currently being separated at the moment, the facile facile's the wrong word the troubling times that you went through still trying to get your degree it really takes courage it really takes courage to do stuff like that thank you i really appreciate that one of the um one of the things that i really concentrated on is early on when i was um thinking about how i was going to start doing this uh digital media approach for running in the right direction is I made a few signs like picketing signs. And one of them says support, not silence. And then I have another sign that goes with that one that says sharing your experiences with mental health. Um, I wish I could remember exactly what it said. Sharing your mental health experiences. Um, like basically alleviates like the stigma 
for other people that are experiencing the same thing. It's a lot more concise than that, how I have it written on the sign. But I fully believe that because to me, that's one of the things that's really helped me to persevere is being able to hear about other people's experiences and the ways they've been able to overcome. And I want to make sure that if there is a way that I can positively affect other people's lives and help them in the way that so many other people have helped me by sharing their story, that, that I'm doing that and that I'm doing that in a full frontal way. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I see that you've been hosting workshops on these IG lives. What has the success rate been of them so far? I would say it's been pretty successful. Um, I think on average, each day, I'm getting probably 15 to 20 direct messages um, about videos that I've posted, people talking to me about things that they're going through. So I've been um, providing individual counseling via direct message and via video message, um, as well as just uh, Instagram, FaceTime. So you don't have to, you know, provide that layer of uh, personal disclosure by giving someone your phone number. You can Instagram, FaceTime, and that, I mean, and that can be extremely effective. Like that's, that's virtual talk therapy right there. So that's been a really cool outreach that I've been able to do. And one of the things that I've noticed that's really evolved over, I'd say the past maybe three weeks is that whenever I post videos and I ask more direct questions, following the treatment group sessions, um, like for example, what are your relapse prevention strategies in the case of this upcoming holiday weekend, people are really posting, like they're commenting in the section below the video saying what, what their relapse prevention strategies are. And earlier on in uh, the development of running in the right direction, that would, the comments were were pretty sparse, but now each each video is getting a good amount of uh, comments below. So that's really awesome. I think that's super helpful for people that are following along that may not feel like they want to comment, but to be able to read the strategies of other members of the team. I think that's really, really cool and can be extremely effective. I hear you. Olivia, bringing it slowly but surely to a close, I still got one or two questions. In your walk from here until now, we try our best to be in service of others. And because of, I will use the term again, out of the box measures that you've used, despite all the obstacles that you've had to overcome and you're currently still tackling, the amount of feedback that you've gotten, be it through a compliment, people opening up to you as you've just mentioned, there must be some sense of gratification and gratitude that comes along with it, knowing that you are making a difference. Am I right in that? Um, I would say definitely um, gratitude, definitely gratitude, not as much maybe gratification. I, um, I still go back and forth occasionally on, you know, is this worthwhile? Like, and I'll question myself, like, do I, am I just making myself look like an idiot? Um, but then later someone will reach out and they'll really reaffirm to me like, no, this is something that is making a difference. And then on days like um, recently, I had a night that I was very triggered. I was uh, extremely emotional and I hopped on for an Instagram live 
and had an outpouring of support and relapse wow. prevention strategies and people that were have been clean and sober for years, people that are just working on their sobriety, people from different countries, different states, et cetera, um, reached out and really, really offered so much support, such a pick me up. And I was so, so grateful for that because that particular day at that point in time, I was, I was staying in a place where I didn't have anyone really to reach out to in person and Instagram live was a huge, like real time support system for me. And that was incredible. In fact, I had a team member reach out to me that's in Nebraska that I had mailed a hat and a water bottle to uh, maybe a month before that had hopped onto the Instagram live chat and they sent me a care package in the mail last week. So that was really, really incredible. They sent me um, early on. I had been drinking a lot of Haritos uh, glass bottled (laughs) soda and like as a, as a replacement for glass, glass bottle beer, of course. And sure. she sent me a Haritos, um, in, in my area where I live, they had stopped making the orange Haritos in glass. They're now selling in plastics, uh, which is just <laughs> not the same. And, uh, so she sent me a glass bottle, orange Haritos, and she sent me a, a candle. She sent me some chocolate. She sent me this awesome card. It was so kind and uplifting, oh. man. I, I'll, I will, like keep that card forever. It was incredible. And just that she took the time to do that. I was like, it went straight to my heart, man. It was awesome. And to realize that I've, um, made those kind of connections with people through digital media and like virtual talk, whatever, like that's, it just blows my mind and fills my heart so much. I just, I'm extremely grateful. Man, I can, I can highly agree with that. Olivia, have there been any life lessons that you've learned throughout this entire time that you've carried with you from then until now that have kept you going? Oh, man, I would say definitely. I don't even know where I would start with that. Um, (laughs) It's a broad question, I know. Yeah, well, the importance of human connection, man, like that one is... I would say that one is, is, is the, is the front runner, the importance of human connection, especially during this time that we've had to live so separate and isolated following pandemic times like that, the importance of human connection. Like I had, there is a person that I talk to regularly that's in London that has been quarantined for a few weeks at this point. And they, they really have reached out to me as a support system during that. And just several different situations, people that are really isolated. Um, it, the importance of human connection is so real. And even when we're left to the, the only options that we have being like social media and virtual connections is still, it can still be so powerful. Mm. It can help us to fill the void of, of really experiencing like the stark alone feeling and especially like I really love like FaceTime Instagram live the way that you can experience the presence of human interaction without you know even if you can't actually like presently be with that person right and I think that can be so powerful and you know what I'm going to end off by saying this and I want you to look me square in the eye For as long as there is breath in your body and for as long as you have been blessed 
with each given day. You fight your ass off. And if anyone dares say go to hell, I'm personally coming to kick your ass out of it. <laughs> thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate that a lot. Olivia, thank you so much for your time. You've been nothing shy of Stella. All the best. Keep up the good fight, my friend. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Chris. having a cuppa for this week we hope you enjoyed this leg of the journey until the next time we meet tell your friends and write us a five-star review on apple podcasts mm-hmm.